We're going to be in Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18, the title of the message today is How Should a Christian Vote? And so we all know what's happening in this nation on Tuesday. And as I said, I've been trying to equip us as God's people for how we should think and act through these difficult times and contentious times. And uh, I know some of you will be glad this will be the last of uh, these kind of messages. But I felt it was necessary, right? A lot of pastors won't talk about these things. Uh, but if the rest of the world is, right? And you can't escape it. You're talking about it at work or with your neighbor around the dinner table. Uh, you hear it 24-7 on the news. So why can't we as God's people, why can't we as uh, the pastors and leaders in church talk about these matters? Because the Word of God has so much to say to us. How should a Christian vote? If you'll find your place in Exodus 18. Well, President Ronald Reagan is remembered as one of America's great presidents because he had the ability to speak directly to the people. And he instilled not only strength and hope in the hearts of citizens, but he also used a great deal of humor to lighten the heaviness of politics. And I remember Ronald Reagan once told a story about a Republican candidate who was running in a rural area that traditionally had voted Democrat for decades. And so this man stopped at a farm to press the flesh. And when the farmer found out that the man was a Republican, why his jaw dropped open and he said, wait right here till I go get Ma. She's never seen a Republican before. So the farmer went and got his wife. Meanwhile, the candidate was looking around for a crate or a barrel or a stump of some kind that he could stand upon to deliver his speech. The only thing he could find, though, on that farm was a fresh mound of fertilizer, also known as manure. And so the politician got up on that mound, and he gave his reasons for why this primitive couple should vote for him. And after he was done, uh, the man shook the farmer's hand, and the farmer said, that's the first time I've ever heard a Republican speech. And then the candidate said, well, that's the first time I've given a Republican speech from a Democratic platform. <laughs> now, in all fairness, in all fairness, you could switch the parties around in that joke for the same effect. But by now, I know that we are all tired, we're all weary of the endless campaign speeches the text messages, how many of you have been getting the text messages and the calls? Praise God, it's all going to end in a few days, we hope. The social media ads, the television smear, the debates, the 24-7 media coverage, we've been exhausted by all of that. And yet it seems that every four years, we're presented with the lesser of two evils when it comes to selecting our candidates. And if you're like me, you have found yourself in past elections voting against a candidate rather than for a candidate. And as daunting as it may be to filter through all the slogans and the policies and the voices to choose who will represent us, one thing is sure, there is a great equality in democracy. We get to go to the polls and cast our ballot. And the great thing is about it is my vote, your vote, counts just as much, no more, no less, than anyone else in the country. The rich and the famous carry no more weight in their ballot than John and Jane Q. Public do. 
And so as, as Christians, we recognize that our voting right is a way, just one way, and it's certainly not the main way, but it is one way that we can be salt and light in our culture because we can select candidates that we believe best represent our biblical morals and principles. And that's what I encourage all Christians to do is read the Word of God, let it inform your heart, and vote Bible, vote values. Let it be known that we are Christians first and Americans second. And so the Word of God should shape our hearts and minds more than any political rhetoric or any party. And I would say to this, we should also not exclusively align ourselves with one party because we need the freedom to be able to say to Republicans and Democrats and Independents, say to everybody as a church, hey, you're all lost. You all need to repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, if there is one passage of Scripture that can help guide our thinking, I believe it's Exodus 18. Here's an episode from the life of Moses. It occurs as he is leading the nation of Israel out of Egyptian slavery, soon on the heels of that Red Sea rescue. And while they're on their way to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, Moses becomes overwhelmed by being the sole leader of his people. He's facing burnout. He's tried to adjudicate all of the civic matters that arose. And that's when Moses' father-in-law, a man named Jethro, comes to the rescue, and he gives Moses some timeless wisdom on leadership, on delegating the workload, and on governing. Now, Jethro counsels Moses to select from among the people a group of judges who will help rule in the cases of the people. And in his advice, I think that Jethro gives Moses several criteria that we should apply as we think about who will represent us in our vote. Exodus 18, we'll read in verse 13. Notice what the text says. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw that he was, all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is it that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? For all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Boy, that's advice that I need to preach to myself. Verse 19, Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall decide to themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you, and you'll be able to endure, and all this people also will go 
to their place in peace. So we see there, especially in verses 21 and 22, some criteria, some qualifications that apply to leaders. And as we think about selecting the president, vice president, senators, congressmen, etc., we're going to apply these principles to our situation today. There are five tests that I think we can apply to any candidate asking for our vote. The first one we read about in verse 21, it's what I call the test of character. The tests of character. We read it there again, verse 21, in the phrase, they should be men of truth, trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. You see it there, verse 21. Moses had to select judges that were men of honesty and integrity. And Solomon, another great leader in the Bible, also spoke about these essential qualities as leaders. Look what he said in Proverbs 29 and verse 4. He said, The king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. Talking about political corruption there and about how kings shouldn't use their office and uh, presidents and leaders shouldn't use their office uh, to rig the system or to gain money out of the situation that will bless them and prosper them to the expense of the people. Proverbs 17, 7 talks about excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. And so basic integrity is essential for any leader because we know that people will not follow somebody that they cannot trust. You may have heard the story that I heard a few years ago about uh, an elderly group, uh, an age group that was touring Washington, D.C., and uh, two little spinster ladies had come across the tombstone of a man who had held a public office for years. And on that tombstone was an inscription that said, Here lies John Doe, a politician and an honest man. And one of the little ladies said to the other, Well, good heavens, <laughs> what a shame. They had to put two people in the same grave. <laughs> and it's a shame that we think that way about our leaders, but it's just so true, right? Listen to what Billy Graham wrote about in terms of character. He said, quote, Integrity means that if our private life were suddenly exposed, we'd have no reason to be ashamed or embarrassed. Integrity is the glue that holds a leader's life together. Wealth, when it is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. But when character is lost, he said, all is lost. And friend, the sad reality is that we live in a society where we hear our media say things about previous presidentials embroiled in, in scandals such as, well, it doesn't matter what a man does in his private life. What he does behind closed doors makes no difference of how he does the job in a public office. Well, friend, I got news for you. That's the opposite of integrity. You see, the measure of true character is doing the right thing when nobody is watching. And if you've got a fear of God, you know that really the Almighty sees all actions here on the earth. And doesn't help, of course, that our big tech corporations and our liberal left-leaning media, they help to protect corrupt politicians who align with their agenda. So we really, as Americans, don't get the full truth, do we? Well, the Bible gives us clear examples of leaders who passed and failed the test of character. Think about Joseph, who protected his sexual purity when Mrs. Potiphar 
came and tried to put the moves on Joseph. He ran straight out of his cloak because he held more dearly to his character. Think about David, a great man of God, a man after God's own heart, but yet he failed the test of character when he was king, and he committed that adultery with Bathsheba, which then led to murder, and then a cover-up, and it was a domino effect started in his whole family, and David ends his life in regret and shame. So yes, character counts. But here's what I know as I read the Bible. God graciously uses flawed and broken people to accomplish His will. Amen? If God needed perfect people to be pastors and leaders, this old boy certainly wouldn't be in front of you today. But I'm thankful that we have a God of a second chance. A God who only works with broken, flawed, and sinful people. Why, Abraham, he had a lying problem. Moses had issues with anger management. It's what kept him out of the promised land. Solomon was a womanizer, yet for all of his wisdom, he didn't really listen to his own preaching. Gideon, he was cowardly, and Peter had foot and mouth disease. But I'm thankful that I know an almighty God, and this God can write straight with a crooked stick. Now, let's be honest. This year's presidential candidates both have their share of character defects and flaws. And it really won't do me any good to expose that and go on about the problems on each side because I don't think that's really going to change very much, is it? Unless Jesus gets a hold of somebody's heart and changes their life. But here's one test I would say that you would apply as you think about the tests of character. Look back over the track record of the folks that are asking for your vote and simply decide which one of these has kept their promises and done what they said that they would do for the American people when they brought into office. You see, politicians are good promise makers, but true leaders of character are promise keepers. Number one is the test of character. Number two, we should also apply what I call the test of competence. The test of competence. We read about that in verse 21 as well, in this little phrase here, look for able men. Able men. So the next criteria that Moses was to look for is not only integrity and honesty, but ability. In other words, what kind of life experiences, what kind of skills, wisdom, and accomplishments would convince us that a candidate actually has the ability to do the job that they have been elected to do? And so we ask ourselves, does the candidate seek to defend the Constitution? Do they understand economics, how to create jobs? Can they be trusted to make big decisions with the use of the military or nominating judges or foreign policy? Are they going to be a leader that's going to restrict religious liberty? Or are they going to be a blessing to America and bring righteousness and help the folks? You see, the Bible has several leaders that showed incredible ability while they led. Think about Joseph. Joseph, who in the Old Testament book of Genesis devised a, a national grain collecting program because God had given, given him special insight to interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh. And Joseph knew that seven hard years of famine were coming up. And so he was elevated to the second most high position in Egyptian government. And, and God used this godly man to collect grain to store it up in the granaries for seven years of, of hard times. And, and God blessed the whole world through this godly leader 
that he put there in pagan center of the world in Egypt. Think of Joshua. Joshua was a man, a leader in the Bible who got it done. He had ability. Think of him marching around the city of Jericho and then taking the promised land. Think about Nehemiah, one of the greatest leaders in the Bible who organized the workers returning from Babylonian captivity and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days, the Bible tells us. Now, I will say this. When we talk about competence in our day and time, one of the major threats against the American way of life, especially in this election more than any other before, is the rising popularity of socialism. And any politician that leans towards socialism, I think we should question their competence as a leader. Just so we're clear, let me define this. What is socialism? We hear it a lot. Maybe it's not defined very well. But socialism refers to the government-controlled redistribution of wealth and services. So over the past year, we have heard a surge of candidates running on this platform. And they promise everything in the world, free College, free health care, free housing, right? All of it taxpayer funded. Now, this is not just a fringe idea. They took a poll last year in 2019, a Gallup poll, that said 70% of millennials, that's my generation, 70%, now say that they would vote for a socialist candidate. God help us. Now, remember the old English tale of Robin Hood? The daring do-gooder who robbed from the rich to give to the poor. That's a narrative that politicians want the voting public to associate with socialism. That they're the good guys making the world better, making a world more equal by using the strong arm of government to legislate and force the greedy haves to help the unfortunate have-nots. That's the narrative they want you to believe. Well, here is what one analyst from Christian Post said about the idea of socialism. Listen to this. And I'm quoting here. President Obama once defended his socialist policies by saying to a little girl, we got to make sure that people who have more money help the people who have less money. And if you had a whole pizza and your friend had no pizza, wouldn't you want to give him a slice? That sounds pretty Christian, right? But what Christian wouldn't endorse sharing your abundance with somebody who had nothing? However, Obama wasn't endorsing people voluntarily sharing their wealth with others. He was endorsing government forcibly taking a piece of the pie from one person and giving it to someone else. Put another way, that's saying if you have three cars and your neighbor has none, that the government has the right to take your car and give it to your neighbor. That's not Christian, friend. That is theft. Now, why has this idea gained such traction in our country today. Why is it growing among young people? Well, there's at least two important reasons that I can think of. Three, actually. Number one, free stuff. How naive do you have to be to believe that uh, there is a free lunch? Somebody's got to pay, though, right? And guess who it is? You know who it is. Then there's ignorance, ignorance of history. Most people who support socialism have no idea how it has been tried and tried and tried and how it has devastated entire countries through the years. I mean, just take your pick. Venezuela, North Korea, the Soviet Union, China, Vietnam. <laughs> just read the history books and see that it doesn't work. And we think we're going to be the exception? I don't think so. And then 
notice this, socialism goes hand in hand with abandoning God and worshiping the idol of government. As God has diminished in our culture, something has to rush in to replace the vacuum. And who is it? It's government. And the more that government grows, the more that people become dependent upon it, and the more that they see not God as their hope, but the government as their hope, the government as their free meal ticket, and so on, and they begin to depend upon those people in power. And you know what that leads to? Tyranny, friend. It leads to dictatorships. One of the great problems, of course, is that in order for this thing to work, you have to tax the daylights out of people to pay for all the free stuff. And those people in control of the free stuff, you know who they become? Dictators. And listen to what former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher said. She explained it this way. She said, the problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money. Winston Churchill said this before Margaret Thatcher. He said, the inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. There's going to be rich and it's going to be poor, right? But then he said the inherent virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of miseries. We have to reject candidates who run on socialism. It has a track record of causing nations to suffer economic ruin and a loss of freedom. And while I'm on that, not only should we reject socialism, we should reject the restriction of religious liberty. We should reject abortion on demand. We should uh, reject the organization, Black Lives Matter, not the phrase we agree. Yes, of course their lives matter, but their agenda is to poison and destroy American society. We should reject LBGTQ and them trying to hoist their rights over religious liberty. We should reject environmentalism and all these other radical isms that want to sweep through our country and really devastate the American way of life. The test of character. The test of competence. And then I want you to see number three today, the test of convictions. We have to apply the test of convictions when we think about a candidate. Because the requirement for public office in Moses' administration was a reverence for God. Did you see it in that phrase, verse 21, men who fear God? Convictions. Listen to what Proverbs 29.2 says on top of this. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Now you think about... History's most notorious leaders. You think about Nero, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, Hussein. Godless men who had no convictions except for narcissism and looking out for themselves. And under some of those ungodly dictators, some of the worst atrocities against humanity were committed. And the sad thing is in our nation is that many of our American seats of power have been filled with godless people who have called evil good who have passed policies that have increased poverty, promoted sexual immorality, restricted religious liberty, and empowered the corrupt genocide of the unborn. But you know what? The opposite is also true, according to that Proverb 29, verse 2. When the God-fearing, when the righteous, when the, they are in power, the society as a whole benefits. It makes sense, doesn't it? This is not rocket science. Prosperity, peace, more opportunity, equality, and freedom flourish 
When there's God-fearing people, I'm not saying that they don't make mistakes. Certainly they do, and the Bible bears that out. But as a general principle, I want somebody who fears God in the highest position of the land. One reason why America has endured as long as it has is because it was founded by men and women who believed that the Word of God should permeate every aspect of our lives. I don't care what the revisionist historian says or what they're teaching in the universities. You go back and you read what our founding fathers thought. Not all of them were Bible-toting Christians. Some were deists, but they had a respect for the Word of God. Listen to this. A few years ago, two professors from University of Houston, a man named Donald Lutz and Charles Hinneman, they wanted to discover whom our founding fathers quoted most often. They did 10 years worth of study. They looked at over 15,000 primary documents and they found that more than, listen to this, a third of all the founding fathers' quotes in citations, in speeches, and in letters came directly from the Bible. One nation under God. That's how we were founded. We've had great presidents throughout the years who have held high the Bible. Listen to what Woodrow Wilson said. He said, The Bible is the one supreme source of revelation of the meaning of life, the nature of God, and the needs of man. America, he said, was born a Christian nation to exemplify righteousness as derived from the Holy Scriptures. Ronald Reagan, listen to what he said. Quote, I believe with all my heart that standing up for America means standing up for the God who has blessed our land. He said, we need God's help to guide our nation through stormy seas, but we can't expect Him to protect America in a crisis if we just leave Him over on the shelf in our day-to-day living. Amen. The question is not, is God done with America? The question is, are Americans done with God? We have to make that decision as we look at who we will select as a leader somebody who has at least a sliver of the fear of God in their life. Well, let, me, let me just break this down a little bit further for you. I can never endorse a candidate who with one breath says, oh, I'm a Christian, oh, I fear God, oh, I'm a person of faith, and then with the other breath says that aborting children in the womb is quote-unquote, reproductive health care. I'm sorry. I know my Bible. I've read Genesis 1. I've read Psalm 139. Fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in mama's womb. You'll never change it. It's murder. It's killing. It's evil. It's wicked. I don't care what law you pass, what label you put on it. I can never endorse a candidate who thinks that that's okay. Why? Because it's the test of convictions. It's the test of what do you really believe about life and about God. I can never support a candidate. I'm just going to be honest with you. I can never support somebody like Kamala Harris, who in 2013 proudly presided over California's first gay marriage. And she holds that as pride in her life. The Bible says that's an abomination. That's a sin. That's evil that we should repent of. Does God love the LBGTQ? Yes. 
All those folks, He loved them. Jesus died for them. But they're living in sin and they need to repent and trust in Christ as Savior and find out that there's a God of grace who wants to change their heart and life. I can never support a candidate like Joe Biden who recently turned to a voter in one of these town hall debates and said an eight-year-old should not face discrimination if the eight-year-old decides that they want to change gender. Hello! Red flag going off. I got a seven-year-old in my house. He can't even decide what time to go to bed. And we're going to let a child decide whether he wants to be a man or a woman. you got to be kidding me. Where's your conviction at, man? Where's your fear of God? Weren't you raised better than that? Don't you know something? Listen to me. If somebody running for public office can't define basic standards of humanity like all life is sacred, whether they're born or unborn, that man is made in the image of God no matter their color of skin, that marriage is between one man and one woman, that gender is not an opinion, it's biological. If they can't get those things right, how can we expect them to get anything right? The test of conviction. Is there a fear of God in their life? And then number four, I want you to see this, the test of counselors. Now step away from it, Exodus 18 for just a moment. Look at Proverbs 25, 4 and 5 because this applies so well. The Bible says this, Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Verse 5, Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. This proverb is drawing an image from the silversmith, burning off inferior metal to make pure silver. And what he's saying here is, likewise, a good leader has to purge the wicked and the hypocritical and the duplicitous helpers from his inner circle of counsel. You see, we all know the Scripture, bad company corrupts good character, doesn't it? And just know that when you vote for president, You're voting for more than a single personality. You're voting for the platform and all the people that that leader is going to put in power. The whole crowd that runs with them. And with respect to the presidential race, you may not like Trump. I had a hard time voting for the man in 2016, I'll be honest with you. Because of his character. Because of his personality. He's brash. He tweets too much. His rhetoric, he can be mean at times. I don't like that. But you know what? To his credit, he has surrounded himself with quality people. And I don't know if you follow this in the conservative media or on social media, but he has got a council of good, godly people around him. You know our vice president, Mike Pence? Not only is that guy a gentleman and an eloquent speaker, he's a committed Christian. He loves Jesus Christ. He's not afraid to say it. I don't know if you have heard his testimony, but if you haven't, get on YouTube, type in Mike Pence testimony. It will absolutely bless your heart. And not only that, I don't know if you saw the vice president debate, but he made a statement. I wanted to stand up and applaud him. He turned to his opponent. He said, I am pro-life. I am unashamed. Not only that, I don't know if you know this, but the media absolutely lampooned him a few years ago when he said, 
I'm going to live by the Billy Graham rule. In other words, I won't meet with another woman who's not my wife behind closed doors. Praise God for somebody with some wisdom like that. Somebody who's looking out for any kind of accusation. So, not only that, but the president has surrounded himself with praying pastors. Greg Laurie, we just saw one, David Jeremiah, Jensen Franklin, Jack Hibbs. He is constantly inviting pastors to come to the White House to do nothing but pray. Hello, the last guy we had would have never done that. Wanted to have Ramadan instead. I stand with the counselors that are in that administration. Great men of God like Ben Carson. So think about it, the test of counselors. And then I also want you to see here number five, the test of choices, and I'm done. So you think about the test of character, the test of competence, the test of convictions, the test of counselors, and then number five, the test of choices. And it's in verse 22. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. The judges that Moses was to appoint were going to be known for the decisions they made. Moses made the choice, and then the judges made their choice over the cases. And these rulings would influence people's lives for generations to come. And here's one way we can think about a candidate. Just look at the policy choices that they have made over the years. Did they make wise decisions to hurt our country? Did they get us in a needless war? Did they make good choices to help us, to move us forward? And I'll say this. No matter what happens on Tuesday, Trump gets reelected or not, he has already left a tremendous impact on this country by nominating three conservative Supreme Court justices. Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett. And boy, wasn't she unflappable if you watch any of those proceedings. They want to know, where's your cheat sheet? And she held it up. I don't have any notes on this. And these SCOTUS choices are constitutionalists, meaning that they are going to interpret laws and decide cases according to the original meaning of the Constitution, not as some living document. We don't elect these judges, but the president nominates them, and then we elect the presidents. And so the future of the court is at stake. And the test of choices is very important. I want to leave you with two thoughts, and I'm done for today. One is this, and it's the power of one vote. Don't believe the polls. Don't sit this one out. They tell us that record numbers have already gone out and voted 80 million. The power of one vote. You think I'm small. I'm insignificant. I don't matter. Listen to this. In 1800, Thomas Jefferson was elected president by one vote in the House of Representatives after a tie in the Electoral College. One vote. In 1824, Andrew Jackson won the presidential popular vote, but lost one vote in the House of Representatives to John Quincy Adams after an electoral college deadlock. And so Quincy Adams won. In 1845, the U.S. Senate passed a convention annexing Texas by just two, two votes. Texas became a state. 1867, the Alaska Purchase was ratified by the Senate just by two votes. And Alaska came in as a state. In 1876, Samuel Tilden won the presidential popular vote, but he came up one electoral vote shy and lost to Rutherford B. Hayes. One vote. 
And in 2000, George W. Bush won the state of Florida, which gave him the presidency. And he won that state with 537 votes. So don't think that one vote is insignificant. And then I finish with this. Jim Dobson, he's the president of the Family Institute. He gave a great statement in his October newsletter, and I want to read it for you. He said this, quote, This is not a junior high or a high school popularity or personality contest. I'm not voting for the person. I'm voting for the platform. I'm voting for the Second Amendment. I'm voting for the next Supreme Court justice. I'm voting for the Electoral College. I'm voting for the republic in which we live. I'm voting for the police and for law and order. I'm voting for the military and the veterans who fought and died to protect this country. I'm voting for the flag that is disrespected and is often missing from public events. I'm voting for the right to speak and not be censored for it. I'm voting for secure borders. I'm voting for the right to praise God without fear. I'm voting for every unborn child that is the risk of being aborted. I'm voting for freedom and the American way. I'm voting for good and against evil. I'm not voting for one person. I'm voting for the future of my country. And the reality is this, friend. However the election turns out, you know, Wednesday morning, if we find out then who the winner is, there's going to be a lot of disappointed people on one side or the other when the ballots are all counted. And friend, if you place your hope in government, you will always be disappointed. If the candidate, listen, if the candidate that I support doesn't get in office, let me tell you, I'm not going to be crying on social media. I'm not going to be out in the streets riding with the mob, tearing down the world if the person I support doesn't get in office. You know why? Because my hope is not in man. My hope is in Almighty God. I'm twice born. I'm spirit-filled. I refuse to live in despair because Jesus is bigger than a president. He's bigger than an election, friend. He's greater than just one tiny nation. One day, America will crumble. One day, our Constitution will be in history's dustbin. And every king, every prince, every president is going to have to bow and kiss the finger and the ring on Jesus' hand and bow to the crown and say, You are King of kings, Jesus. You are Lord of lords. You see, King Jesus, listen to me, He's the only leader that we can all really get behind. He's the only hope and change that I can believe in. Jesus is the only Savior who can really make us great again. He's the only leader who perfectly fits all these descriptions that we read about in the chapter. Oh, His character is flawless. The Bible said He's like a lamb without spot or blemish. Ye who is without sin, cast the first stone. I find no fault in this man, Pilate said when he investigated him. You talk about competence. You talk about somebody who can get the job done. King Jesus, he walks on water. He feeds the multitudes. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. Oh, he don't need no brain trust either because one of his many titles is Wonderful Counselor. Paul said, In him are all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. Am I preaching yet today? When it comes to choices, friend, it's not real hard. Jesus made the ultimate one for you and me when he chose the cross, when he chose the nails. He made the ultimate choice when he laid down his life to be your Redeemer. 
And my Redeemer, He's greater than a president. He wants to be resident in your life. So before you pick a candidate, before you cast a ballot, you make sure that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior because He will never disappoint. He'll never be impeached. He'll never find Him in a scandal. And friend, He will never break a promise. I'm telling you, I wish I could write Jesus 2020 in on the ballot. My goodness. Can we stand? And can we sing today as we finish? Let's have a time of invitation. If you need to come down for any reason, to pray, to seek the Lord's face, to repent, you do that. Maybe you just need to stay where you are and you pray for your nation and for our leaders.